Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. Welcome to Show Your Work. We're here. And uh, thank you for supporting our last two podcasts with Josie. Uh, we, I mean, we loved that conversation, that time with him, and we're so happy that you um, that you responded well to that. He was incredible. So like, good. It was so much fun. So good. Um, and so here we are, and you know, regular podcasting time. And I have to tell you, I have a big new goal, and I want you to help me with it. Um, you look worried. Yeah. Well. Th- the last time you had a goal, yeah. it was bangs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, I did. and You did for a week. I still will when it gets, look, like when it's more humid. Curls are hard in the dry, cold air. Yeah. LA is fine for it. It's a different story. Okay. Like, bear with me on that one until it's a bit warmer. Got it. But it's actually kind of related. So I have discovered the first thing that I want to do, like, spawn con for. Like, I have a product that I want to endorse. This is not a commercial. This is yeah. not, they do not sponsor us. I desperately want to endorse this product. I know you're supposed to let them come to you. I don't yeah. care. I want to be yes. the spokesperson. Okay. Um, for Tub Shroom. Do you know about this? No. You don't? Okay. I'm obsessed with this. I don't even know how I saw it because it's marketed as one of those, like, as seen on TV products. Right. So, and who watches TV anymore and watches commercials, right? Right. So, the Tub Shroom goes into your tub drain and collects hair so that your tub so that your drain doesn't get all clogged like is it mechanical no it's like a bit of meshy plastic and it's shaped like a mushroom hence tub shroom um and like the first time i bought it i got it wrong i bought a sink shroom by mistake uh, and it goes in there and it magically… It goes in where? The hole where it, the water leaves? Yeah, it goes okay. in the drain. Our shower drain is a bit weird. Like it's not shaped. It's not at the front the way some are. But yeah, it goes in there. Yeah. And it just like collects up all the hair. And I was very skeptical. We've been on a long quest. Wait, and it doesn't slow down the draining? No, because this… is Okay, look. I don't know what your story is. Yeah. But you shower every freaking day. Um, many times Many times. Yes, you shower, yes, hourly. Um, So you know about hair and shedding and whatnot. It gets places. Like dealing with long hair is a constant thing. And I don't know about your house, but we like had Drano on our list as just a general grocery that you buy all the time. Yasik is always complaining about my hair. Right. So this, no. So on the contrary, so like after you're in a good shower phase where you've poured the Drano so there's no built-up clog and you're not showering in an inch of water. Gross. Um, put it in the tub shroom. It's a game changer. Is it gross when you pull it out? It's amazing gross, though. Like, I mean, look. <laughs> okay. Everybody, as you know, Duanna and I love gross shit. And many years ago, when it oh. first started, you you discovered figure A. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. God, that was so amazing. And figure one. Figure one, sorry. Yeah. You discovered figure one and there were like – Tumors that they used to pull out of people that were growing hair and teeth. What are those called? Teratoma. Okay. So 
do you like you know how sometimes when you pull the fucking hair out of the drain, it looks like a teratoma? Yeah, but I kind of feel like it looks like that anyway. If you have a, like a day when you shed a lot and you like do whatever you do with your hair in the shower, don't let it go down the drain. You stick it to the wall or something gross. It looks like a small rat anyway. So it's I know it's so satisfying <laughs> and gross at the same time. I'm feeling it right now. But no, the tub shroom, it comes out like a loop. What? What? Like, well, because the, I don't know why it works, but it collects the hair in like a circle. So when you wipe off the tub shroom, it's like a, like a hoop of hair. I, I'm just going to have to get this just to, I don't know if it's going to work on my thing because like my drain in my shower is like one of those buttons. You so, know, it has like a, a hat. Uh, okay. Like it's not just a hole. On top of the hole is a metal button. And if you like step on it, then the water can fill up for the oh, tub. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can take that thing out. You and then take, put the tub shroom in? Yes. Like our thing is actually covered by a tile, I don't know, runner. Yeah. You take that thing out to address the drain and insert the tub shroom. Okay. I, yeah, I'm very, I'm going to go look at the YouTube commercial for a tub shroom. A hundred percent. I highly endorse this. This is free advertising. Tub shroom. Come at me, tub shroom. I want to be like, I literally, I was going to put this all over Instagram. And then I was like, no, I'm going to save it for you because I know that you'll understand. Joanna wants to work for you. Come at me. I love that so much. Okay. I'm going to look it up because you know what? Now I'm just thinking, like I'm thinking of a fucking condom looking thing because every time I think of a mushroom, I think of a penis. I'm that child. I mean, I'm that kid. Okay, so look, here I will say this: so I will it's a penis say in your drain, sort of. I will say that like if sex. you were a designer of tub shroom, <laughs> right, you might have to work overtime to not have that association there. Like oh. I, anything mushroom related, I guess you want to it's avoid dicks. that. But like, well, don't mess up my sponsorship. <laughs> it's a clean family product. It's like American Vandal now. Yes, it's a, it is, God, RIP American Vandal. But I, no, it's a, it's a very like streamlined looking thing. Yeah. And more importantly, it's just, and I think the sink shroom, like you can use it for like, I don't know, vegetable cuttings or right. something, but whatever. I'm an OG. I feel strongly about this. Okay. Okay. Just because I name-checked American Vandal, this is very separate from Tub Shroom. Tub Shroom, like, this has nothing to do with your product. Please continue to be interested in Duanna as your spokesperson. Right. But now that I just name-checked American Vandal, you know what I loved maybe most about season one is the way they worked that into the vernacular, like, who did the dicks? Who? It was <laughs> yeah. it was the dicks. Like, we were trying to figure out who did the dicks. Uh, he couldn't have done the dicks because on the day that the dicks were done, it was you, it was the phrase, who did the dicks, that killed me every time. Right. Well, and it wasn't, it was not just, it made them, what is that thing in language? It was not just, um, there were dicks. Like, they weren't just nouns, right? They were a verb. Yeah. Who did the dicks? Yes. Like, who was in the yes. doing? Yes. Um, um, I, I loved it so much. I know. I feel, no, like, we have to get in here and be like, Guys, like, watch American Vandal yeah. if you haven't. Um, it's so spectacular. Uh, and um, there's, a, there's a tenuous, thin link from American Vandal to an upcoming podcast guest that's going to be really fun to talk about in the future. Uh, so that's a little teaser. But just for your own joy, mm-hmm. certainly watch season one. Then give it a breath before you watch season two. But, like, gone too soon on both counts. 100%. Like, I think that they – season two was great. 
Season two was great. It was not yeah. as like, we can't talk about this without spoiling everything. No. But like, it was spectacular. Yes. Um, I highly endorse it. There's nothing better for a binge watch than mm-hmm. American Vandal. Please yeah. do this in watch American our Vandal names. And uh, be sad that there won't be a third season. Maybe Tubshroom wants to sponsor a season. We don't know. <laughs> And hi, Top Shroom. Duanna is your very, very... I mean, I feel like you are probably the only person who is riding for Top Shroom. You're exactly right. And that's why I know it can <laughs> yeah. happen for me. Because I'm like, yeah. you know... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to get, nor do I want, the big, like... I'm not trying to yeah. be a Glossier person. No, no. Um, yeah. I want what I want. And what yeah. I want is Top Shroom. <laughs> Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So uh, today's episode... Yes, uh, is all about SpawnCon. No, it isn't at all. Not at all. But we had been talking about how to talk about this episode, and I said, are we talking about how last week in media was like it was 2004? Mm-hmm. Um, which you quite liked, so I'm just yeah. going to repeat it. Uh, but yeah, it of all the topics and all the things, everything still comes in a distant second to sort of the the news of the week, which is to say the news interviews and broadcasts and whatnot of the week. That's right. So we're talking about the two-part documentary film that aired on HBO, Leaving Neverland, followed by Oprah's special, After Neverland, obviously dealing with the Michael Jackson child molestation allegations, and then the R. Kelly interviews with Gail King, on CBS this morning. And, you know, it's maybe, it, it was strange because on the one hand, you want to separate those two things and be like, why, you know, you don't have to link them just because Oprah and Gail, Oprah and Gail. And yet they seem like two halves of one bigger story. Yeah. So putting Gail aside for a minute, Gail, you're number one in our hearts, don't worry. Um, but no, to be serious, the the biggest story, of course, has been Leaving Netherland and that two-part doc. Yeah. Which, were you surprised it was two parts after you saw all of it? I, after I saw all of it, I wasn't. I understood why it had to be, I mean, I understand why it had to be four hours, put it that way. I under, Yeah, okay, fair yeah. enough. I understood why it had to be four hours, but I think the thing that it did really well that maybe some other projects like this have not done well is they didn't pull punches to save them for part two. Mm-mm. There were plenty mm. of punches in part one. It was, part one was a gigantic punch. Yeah, like, absolutely. And and not to be cutesy about it, it was really, really difficult to watch. Yes. I guess, I mean, I think that, let's just start with our personal impressions. Um, because I I can pull out, if I were to pull out all the texts I sent while watching it, Half of them would be, I don't want to believe this, but it's impossible not to. It was very troubling. Like, duh. Okay. Like, understatement. At, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I know what Whatever. You mean. It was so troubling. It was so disturbing. I, like everybody else, grew up on Michael Jackson, grew up on the music, grew up on the mystique, grew up loving him. So I didn't want to believe it. And yet I found both... Uh, James Safechuck and Wade Robson, very credible. And their families, very credible. Of course. I mean, I don't mean to say of course in that way. Like, yeah, 
Um, although I think that it, the stories are too mundanely similar to not be true. But what was, what struck me the whole time I was watching, to be honest, um, when they were talking less about the specifics of what happened in Michael's bedroom, but the specifics about being selected, how they became the boys, right? Uh, that this, uh, I think Wade Robson was chosen from a dance contest uh, in Australia, of all places. And then uh, James Safechuck, he was he auditioned to be in in the commercial, right? In yeah. the And ultimately, that's how he sort of was. And what I kept thinking about, and the thing that made it the most true for me, was that these were just the boys whose parents said yes. That there would have been many also-rans, that there was always that conversation about there were people around, there were kids around, and there were probably other people where it didn't get this far for one reason or another, where people put up stopgaps. So I never thought like, oh, these are... I think people want to believe, especially in the case of Wade Robson, well, this is somebody who's like trying to get in in the industry or attention or whatever. And it always seemed to me like they were victims of circumstance as much mm-hmm. as anything else. I think, too, I, as as I was watching it, I, I mean, I agree with all of that. And in many ways, I think that was the point of, of what Dan Reed, the director, was doing is it, this documentary which documentaries are supposed to do is educate. So it walks you through what a form of grooming and predation looks like. So in many ways, there was something academic to it. Mm -hmm. The way the the documentaries can function. I think that was done really well. I think the point of, like the point of great editing, for example, is that you never notice it. Mm -hmm. But I think that... uh, Wade and James were essentially finishing each other's sentences without it looking contrived and constructed, right? Like it was just clear that their stories were uh, distinct, but not divergent. Yeah. The same goes for the editing where the interviews with especially the mothers are concerned, right? And uh, exactly that reaction. I Listen, here's what I do really want to say about me, myself, is it's not like this documentary was out of the blue. We've been hearing about this for a long time. Absolutely. I remember distinctly uh, when the 2005 trial happened. Uh, it's, it's been a conversation for a long, long time. I remember when he came on TV um, it it was like th- with the Jordan Chandler situation and which ended up getting settled and he came on TV and gave the message from Neverland and denied it. And so it has been bef- well before his death, these things have been talked about. And well before his death, I know that I thought it was weird. Why is a 30-something and then 40-something, like why is a person who is a proper adult only spending time with young boys. Like, that is weird. Like, yeah, right? look, Yeah, look. Yes, of course. The narrative we were sold at the time, and I don't like this cliche usually, but I will say, in a more innocent time, which we were in a lot of ways, the narrative we were sold was 
Michael Jackson is, uh, you know, a bit stunted, essentially a child at heart. He's not emotionally developed like an adult. Ergo, yeah. he prefers the company of children because he still wants to be a kid. Peter Pan syndrome. Blame it on Joe Jackson. Yeah. Blame it on mm-hmm. whatever. There were all kinds of sort of explanations in that way. And that, I think, is what was most different about leaving Netherland was that, you know, on purpose, there was no, and this is the criticism a lot of people have, there was no voice for the other side. There was no doctor. There was no voice from the Jackson family. There was nobody explaining, no, this is just how he is. They didn't put Macaulay Culkin on film. I don't know if they, you know, I don't believe he would have done it anyway, but the point is there was nobody there who could give us one of those old lines and old tropes. Yeah. No, I think for me, like where I'm struggling with me internally is that given that this is not news, all the, like all this speculation and what we've been talking about, I think that I'm not alone, but I'll just speak for me. I, it, I almost, it's not like I needed it because it's a terrible thing to need, but you almost, we had to get to the point where a, a filmmaker put these two people on camera to describe in very graphic detail what happened to them, allegedly. And I mean, I say allegedly, not because I don't believe them, but because Again, let's throw this in there. The Jackson family and the Michael Jackson estate vigorously deny all of these claims. Yeah, I don't care, though. Like, I I hear you, and that's fine. I don't want anybody to get sued or whatever, but… Yeah. Yeah, and maybe the reason that that's the case is because in an effort to squash these stories, which we now know was happening for decades Mm -hmm. for these stories to be squashed… In an effort to squash those stories, we knew way too much about Michael Jackson anyway, right? Yeah. We knew that, uh, you know, we saw the pictures of his fucking hyperbaric chamber where he slept. We knew how much he spent on all the things. We knew about who the parents were or the mother of his children and, uh, you know, that he had birthmarks or vitiligo on his genitals. Like, we knew too much anyway that had been used to explain away, which I think uh, I'm not a, I'm not a studier of, of sociopathy or whatnot, but I would suspect that's a technique, right? Like flood them with details in order to distract. So maybe that's why those kind of very bald, very, you know, very, very mechanical facts helped you. I think the other thing that's interesting about that is that they were obviously, the language was not sophisticated. And I would love to know, I know that uh, the interviews with with Wade and James were roughly three days long a piece, mm-hmm. but he had them, one of the reasons I think those descriptions of the actual mechanics of what those abusive situations looked like was so affecting is because they spoke like nine or 10 year olds. Like they weren't saying, uh, and then we were unclothed or whatever. It was very kid-like, heartbreakingly, in the way that they talked about it. So that is really a personal feeling. Like, 
as a fan or a former fan, I don't know. Like, I think we're all still wrestling with what we've heard and what's been presented. And yet, next to this is the way it was presented and who's presenting it. Mm-hmm. Um, HBO, which is for a while now has been known as prestige television, right? Yeah. Like prestige, a prestige network, lots of Emmys, lots of, they moved forward with this in spite of the lawsuit that the Jackson family estate or the Michael Jackson estate has launched against them, which is a hundred million dollars. They have stood by it. They're standing by the filmmaker and they were able to secure the participation of Oprah in coordination, in conjunction with OWN to air the one hour special after Neverland. Which, when I saw that press release, so the first part of Leaving Neverland aired on Sunday, March 3rd. Mm -hmm. And on Thursday, the Thursday before, and that would have been, I think, February 28th. That's right. HBO sends out a press release, hey, Oprah's doing this special after Neverland that will air immediately after the second part on Monday, March the 4th. Mm -hmm. And this was taped with the filmmaker, with Wade Robson and James Safechuck in front of an audience of survivors. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, I don't think you need to see it. I'm going to see it. But I don't think you need to see it to get Oprah's intention. No, it's true. But it's an interesting choice, right? Because here's the thing about, the, about leaving Neverland is – in its totality, in those four hours, and you said, I understand why it was broken up, and at Sundance, it aired in its entirety. I think there was a break. Right. You know, but like it, an intermission or whatever. Right. Yeah. But the, the full, yes. everything we saw, they oh, saw. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think that what's interesting about the Oprah thing is you almost, you this much don't need it because that that doc, what it did was it was so exhaustive and successful in explaining the hows and whys and what fors that you almost wonder, I wondered before I saw the Oprah special, what for? Because, you know, I I learned all the answers to all the things uh, that I wished I didn't know, but, you know, that were better for knowing. I wasn't sure what she was there to do. Right. I didn't ask the question, what for? Yeah. My reaction was, oh, shit, like, now it's on. Because, just one more, like, go one step sort of deeper, because it, that means what to you? If she's but, doing this… Because if Oprah… We know what the Oprah effect, right? We know what Oprah aligns herself with. We also know that Oprah knows the Oprah effect. So when Oprah is attaching herself to something, it's pretty much an endorsement. Oh, absolutely. So for me, it's, well, shit, Oprah is clearly supporting the filmmaker and supporting the testimony or the, the, you know, the claims of these two people and therefore against whom? Against Michael Jackson, against the Jackson family. And that is surprising to you because of how intimate she's been with them over the years? I, I mean, listen, I've done a little bit of reading since and remembering and there was some intimacy. Like she did that interview, that big interview with Michael Jackson. She went to Neverland. I think it was like 1993. The way I remember it and in the reading I've done since, and it's not like I've done tons of reading, but I've done a little bit, is the 1993 interview at Neverland was like, this is the biggest pop star in the world and I've gotten an interview with him. It's pretty exclusive. Oh, I remember that one for yeah, sure. Huge. And in subsequent years, 
her language started to turn a little bit on him. Mm -hmm. Like, I do think, I do remember she did call into question the weirdness of the hanging out with young kids. Yeah, and that I saw uh, in my subsequent reading, that there are people who, and we'll get to this, people who are upset with her uh, taking this angle that she she mentioned a few times in the context of when her show was still on or yeah. other appearances that she was still doing. She was definitely looking askance yes. at Michael Jackson. Yes. So she went from that 1993 interview to in subsequent years, as you said, side-eyeing it, right? Right. And now it is like a, a pretty firm, uh, it, it's a pretty firm, to me anyway, at least when I got that press release, I was like, well, this is an endorsement of the film and therefore of the claims of these two people. Um, but I didn't ask, as you to go back to your original point, what for. However, I will say that the question was answered for me without me knowing I was asking it, do, at the end of her special. Oh, now I know what she did it for. Right. Right, right, right. And that's been made very clear. And yeah, I am looking here. She did do an interview with uh, Michael Jackson's children in 2012 at their grandparents' home. That's what I was thinking of. Right. Um, anyway. So. So here she is. Yep. And yeah, she comes out, as you say, with a purpose, right? Like with an angle and a purpose to do what she needs to do. Well, you mentioned that the documentary did its job. Mm-hmm. And I agree with it. And I agree with that. As a standalone, for sure. And what I mean by that is that they naturally raised questions through the course of the documentary and answered them. Yes. Um, why didn't you testify. tell the truth? Yes. Why didn't you testify? Right. Where were the parents? I mean, they spent a lot of time on this. Uh, I want to just quickly mention because it's been so, It's everybody on the internet has made this comparison, but uh, this doc comes on the heels of Abducted in Plain Sight, mm -hmm. which was the Netflix documentary about uh, a family where, uh, you know, some some parents were willfully ignorant of the abuse being perpetuated yeah. on their daughter. Right. And so it's an interesting comparison piece there. But where that doc left some questions raised, I felt that this one answered them. Yeah. You know, as much as was possible. The, you could see the points where the parents were unable or unwilling to go further. Yeah. So the questions were answered. Yeah. As a standalone piece, leave, Leaving Neverland, yeah, can exist on its own. It mm -hmm. doesn't need After Neverland with Oprah Winfrey. So what then was the purpose of Oprah and doing it in this format? Right. Because the other thing about it is that you've been very good the whole time we've been recording and you're good at this anyway, but I keep wanting to call it an after show, which of course is, you know, a bit flip, but also the, the purpose of an, of that format of a talk show after something airs has always been to debate the point or discuss mm -hmm. the thing that was raised. Right. And, you know, in a way that format is very brave because we're, it's, it's, you know, if you're going to come out, as you say, if she does this, it means she's coming down with a position very clearly, i.e. I believe victims, right? 
to then sort of open it up to discussion or theoretical discussion, that's brave on something like this. Yeah. And I think that it is brave and it's also familiar. Oprah, as we know, had a 25-year run on her talk show. And since it ended, she's been very sparing. Dare I say, she actually hasn't revisited the setting, like doing something in that setting where she's sitting um, in a chair on the, if you're looking at your TV, on the right side, Uh and the guests are on the left side. We all know that. We had 25 years of watching her you watch the TV on the right side of your TV is always reliably Oprah. Right. Her guests are always reliably on the left. It is in front of a live audience. The lighting is, <laughs> we know the Oprah lighting. It is creamy. It is like soft. It's, it's generous. Yeah. Although this interview with exactly the same format with all the audience who you pointed out were survivors. Yeah. Um, felt like it was in like a hangar or something. Like it was less warm. Yeah. It was in like a theater or something right. like a lecture hall. And but, it certainly it wasn't at Harpo. Like, no, but I thought it. that was kind of the point, right? Yeah. Like it, 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 you used such a great phrase earlier. I'm not going to take it out of your mouth. You said that watching it felt like. Oh, putting back on an old sweater. Right. You knew exactly what was going yes. on. Yes. But at the same time, I felt that having it be, yeah, having the audience be a little less comfortable or the lighting a little harsher was like, don't get too comfortable, which I quite enjoyed. But the point is, is that it felt for many of us, most people watching probably, like you were going back in time. I know this. I know this show. I know what's going to happen. I know what she's going to say. When she refers to the expert, the doctor, he's going to be in the front row. Right. Right? Right. And one other point with that, when you say, I know this and I know what's going to happen, there's a trust there, i.e. Oprah's going to take me on a ride. Yes. And also, I know what's going to happen. Oprah often had like, I'd have to go back and forensic it now because in old Oprah's, when it wasn't like my favorite things, there's usually a real bomb drop around the 25 minute mark. And then they go to a break. Yeah. Right? And then they come back, talk some things through, and then there's another real bomb drop like at the 45-minute mark. I would love to go back now and watch after Neverland and see if those same beats hit at the right times. I I was watching this and I was thinking to myself, wow, she's like, she is bringing back the nostalgia. She is tapping into… A muscle that she grew in an audience and not an insignificant audience for a reason. You know, she opens by talking to camera as she does, familiar, like it's familiarity. And she says, you know, when I was doing my show, so right away, it's intention. Welcome back. Her favorite word, intention, by, by the way. So uh, yeah, welcome back. Here I am. This is what I'm doing today. And she said, on my show, We did 217 episodes about child sex abuse. Mm -hmm. And this documentary did the one thing I couldn't do. So she brings us home, essentially, and then says, here's how home didn't quite get it. I couldn't properly teach you all about how sexual abuse and sexual seduction are related. Right. And then there we go. Right. Here is the purpose. Here is 
And so you've answered my question, which is, this is the purpose of that after show, right? Is to talk about the the ways that they are linked. Yeah. What was the biggest moment for you in the whole thing? I don't know if there was, I mean, I'm sorry I can't answer this the like to pinpoint a moment, but for me it was pretty much right off the top when she was using all her Oprah powers to essentially translate the experience of Wade and James for people. Like she was basically saying, I will take you on my shoulders and I will carry you and this is how I'm going to do it through the thing that I know that I can do is my words. And so what she was doing was she was basically saying, when they say this, they mean this. Right. And when you're hearing it from me, it means it's more true. And it was so obvious. Like she was not being subtle about it. To answer your question, that was the moment for me. I was like, she is, and I wrote that to you over text. I said, she is fucking going for it. Yeah, absolutely. And no punches pulled. No. Because she's clearly frustrated that people still don't know what this looks like. That people ask questions about, well, didn't they really want this? Or why would they go back to him? You know, uh, Why did the, he lie? You saw, yeah. And a lot of the questions are, well, then why did... Uh, Wade Robson want a job in whatever year or yeah. whatnot. Uh, and she was so, it was clear that she was annoyed with the general public's refusal to get it. Yeah. Even though she was trying to tell them for so long. Well, she was trying to tell them and had lived it and clearly, as you say, was willing not only to take them on her shoulders as a professional, but to say, hey, I have been there and I will corroborate everything you're saying. The thing that was the most massive to me, the thing that was clear, because, you know, you're talking about the old format and yeah, Oprah works great in that format, but we've seen her like in one-on-one interviews too and do really well in those, right? right. So I, I, I can't decide whether I think the format was there to shake up our ideas, to say, hey, you're only going to shake off certain biases that you have if we go back to basics Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and all the same things. Like she even had uh, Anthony Edwards who, you know, Anthony Edwards, uh, who was star of ER, who spoke, I think, in 2017 about his longtime abuser and what that was like. She even had him in the front row as a surprise, like he'd been there the whole time. And you're like, oh, look, Anthony Edwards. That's such her format. So is that, was her format that way because we're talking essentially about the 90s, about old school ways to get us back into that mindset? Well, I mean, I I credit to you because I think that is one of the grounding points of our episode here is old school, old mm-hmm. formats. This is a familiar format, the Oprah talk show format, all the familiar beats as you're saying down to the timing of like when a when a bomb drops or when a big detail comes down. And, you know, to segue or to bring another part and component of our discussion in now, what we saw was also a type of old school celebrity event interview in what Gail King did with R. Kelly. Is that the way that we are comfortable with handling big 
celebrity stories like this? Well, it's it it's different, right? Like the whole reason that you have what's the reason for a live audience? Let's be that simple. Why do you have a live audience? Oh. Like um, you know, you, you energy. Per- yep. Energy is one for yeah. sure. Yeah, you you feed off its energy. It's in some ways it's corroboration. Yep. Right? You like it, this happened live. Right. Yeah. And when you, because you do this, you work on a show that is very prepared and produced, but is still taped in front of a live audience, which means things can change. Or how does it change when, even if if you've worked out a segment and your talking points and whatever, when the audience is there, mm-hmm. things change, That's right? right. And so… You read the mood. You read the mood. You have to read the mood and adjust, adjust accordingly. I kind of wonder if, Oprah had a live audience for a reason that Gail King's interview couldn't afford, which we'll get to. I think Oprah wanted to shock people. I think she wanted mm. to see the faces in the room go, <gasps> mm-hmm. or, you know, to hear the audible sighs or gasps and or whatnot. And get the emotion. That brings it home to people. Yeah. And when I asked you about what's your most memorable moment, to me, the most memorable moment is when she kind of seized on something a little bit vague that I believe Wade Robson said about why you don't tell and you don't know what to say and you don't know what to, and it kind of was okay or whatever. And she went so specific. She was like, yeah, if somebody is stroking your penis, it feels good. This is what's hard about being a, uh, a yeah. sexual abuse victim. Not yeah. what's hard, many, many things. But this is what's so difficult is you feel complicit because your body responds yes. with pleasure. Yeah. People don't want to hear that kind no. of thing. People yeah. do not want to confront that kind of a reality. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was Oprah's big shot that she was mm-hmm. going to spend because the people in the room would process that. Because you can yeah. hear a ripple of people going, oh, oh, oh. Um, and agreeing. And you could hear the, you could see the nodding. Yeah, or yep. debating. And then, oh, I never thought about that. Yep. Or, oh, or whatever, you well, know. And that was what she was attacking with the vocabulary. Because, you know, the term is sexual abuse. And abuse as a word, as she's saying, is a harsh word. It's associated with pain. That's right. And so her point with associating abuse with the seduction is that the seduction often at the moment is not painful. Not physically painful. No, That's of right. course, it's not until, and this is why you have people not until years later yes. going, that was not right. That yes. was not okay. She was driving that point home in front of an, a live audience who could either appreciate it because they've had that breakthrough in their treatment and therapy or maybe are still getting there. Right. But hearing it from Oprah, mm-hmm. who is unimpeachable, yeah, you know, uh, or to certain audiences is unimpeachable, makes it that much more palatable. That's right. But still, you know, we're talking about the format and going back to what's familiar, going back to like an old couch. <laughs> right. And you know, getting into those grooves and being, and sitting there in that comfort, processing that. And, you know, I brought up Gail King and R. Kelly when we're talking about format inspired by your um, hypothesis that, like, did we see in media last week 
a return to old school celebrity interviews as an event. It used to be an event, like 90s and in the early 2000s. You know, you remember the commercials, right? Tonight, 9 p.m. Oh, Barbara Walters or Diane Sawyer or uh, Oprah's exclusive interview with, and we'd make sure we'd watch it. Like everybody watched it. Well, if you missed it, that was it. Yeah. Um, And you were hooked on, yeah, a a broadcast day and night and channel. It's worth noting that both these, both these interviews that we're talking about were on broadcast television uh, on a traditional schedule. I mean, you can PVR everything, but they were at a date and time. Yeah. And like CBS This Morning, very smartly, almost immediately started uploading to Twitter the clips and dividing the interview up. But Mm -hmm. to your point, the original format was an original conventional television format. Mm -hmm. And it was, it felt like that kind of event that we knew a celebrity TV interview event that we knew from back in the day. And, you know, the biggest one that I can remember right now off the top of my head is Diane Sawyer and Whitney Houston, right? Mm -hmm. Similar to, look, you don't do interviews like that if everything's going well. Like, I, right? Well, yes and no. Like, no, you don't do a news magazine interview when Diane Sawyer might turn around the next night and interview a, you know, a serial killer or a a disgraced politician or whatever. That's heavy hitter stuff. Yeah. But it's also a way to guarantee that you have all of the eyeballs. Like, part of the trend of celebrities not doing interviews now or not doing things is that they've end arounded in that way, that I can get more attention via my Instagram than I can going to any given magazine or outlet or whatever. I don't have to. Yeah. So that interview at that time with Whitney Houston was… Yeah. Yeah. But it was also… It was known that it was going to be seen by everybody. And that's right. Regardless of the way it wound up, it would have been theorized by her team that this is a way to reach as many people as possible. Right. And so, look, before, like, I I know I shouldn't have to say this, but we live in a time when, you know, people extrapolate. So we are not equating Whitney with R. Kelly. We are talking about the televised interview event with a celebrity. Yeah, we're, no, but we're equating the format. We're equating the... Uh, the tight close-ups and the, you know, the the clips that you've seen over and over and the sort of… But it's even like the pan out where yep. you can see the light rig. Yeah. Right? And like the wires. Yeah, it's the And news, the cameras. Yeah, right? it's the news magazine style. That's right. But even the interview style, and this is where we're going with the work, right? That the dry rhetorical question followed by not filling the space yep. and waiting for the person to give you the television gold yep. is, is right there. Yep. You know, that's old, old school. The part I thought was funniest, actually, before we get to anything else, is uh, at one point in one of the clips when R. Kelly is preparing to go off, he says to Gail, is that my camera right there? Yeah. And I'm like, you know what your camera is. A two-camera setup. <laughs> like an interview always has the same two-camera yeah. setup. 
your camera is always over my shoulder and vice versa. Yeah. That's how it all, he knows what his camera yeah. is. I, I found that. Oh, fuck. Like, I mean, duh. yes, he knows what his camera is. Um, not to be like whatever, but yes, you're right. Two cameras set up for like the subjects and then you've got the probably the third that's going like right in between them. You know, the. You mean like a roving cam? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Either the roving camera, a wide, or, a wide, oh, the wide. or the, yeah. the person who was taking the stills exactly. that we saw, or whatever. Exactly that, because yes. that still of him like standing up, and it looks like he's he's not trying to hit her. But if you didn't know the photo in that's context, what it looked like that's yes. right, and that would have been taken from the straight down the pipe. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is not always. You don't always have that no. camera, or you can zoom out enough over somebody's shoulder anyway. Right. But you know, but it's interesting to discuss because we know. I was thinking, you know, Oprah had that big live event so that she herself, Oprah, could be the loose cannon a bit. Yeah. That's her playground. That's her living room. Yeah. She can pull out all the Oprah tricks. That's where she's at home. That's right. And Gail is at home, I would say, in that setting. I would agree with that, but I would also say R. Kelly is the loose cannon in that scenario. Uh-huh. We know that before we ever turn the cameras on, right? Yeah. So you want… A real traditional scenario that, as you say, feels like an old sweater that people are super comfortable with right. so that they can see the moment, and we didn't have to wait long, the no. moment that he starts to panic and is like, I can't be in this scenario. I can't do this. They're not walking on a beach. They yeah. are not in his living room. No. They're not. They are, they're clearly in like a mid-range hotel suite somewhere mid Chicago, middle everything. Like, nothing is to be remarked upon mm-hmm. except for yeah. his behavior. And also, though, in that setting, as you said, it's it's so generic so as to highlight him. But in that generic setting, which is home for her and her comfort zone, she is then able to, at a moment's notice, which she does, rely upon her experience and her skills and everything in her toolbox to be able to set up, well, I don't want to say the word set up like it's a setup, but to be able to like set the best conditions for her to do her job. Well, but let's be real. It is a setup. So here's the thing. Oprah is going, uh, because we're comparing these two, and it's yeah. interesting because, of course, we know that they are friends and have had similar training and whatnot. But Oprah, even with the subject matter that she was working with, is walking into a warm room. As we know, she knows that format like the back of her hand, right? And this is, she stacked the audience with people who would care. Uh, She knew the format. She does whatever. I'm not saying she didn't prepare. It's clear that she prepared, but it's also something that she's known. If you are Gail King and you're walking into a situation that is volatile at best, yeah, you have to prepare like your life depends yep. on it. And he asked for the interview, right? He did. So she has to make sure that this interview delivers, makes it worthy of her, I don't want to say stooping, but I'm going to say stooping to mm-hmm. interview him. It was not yeah. a stoop. I think it was newsworthy. I think it was worthwhile, although some people are angry that he got the airtime. But she has to prepare to make sure that she can bring home enough to make it worth it. Yeah. Like, do you think, where do you think she prepped for questions? In the mirror? 
With one of her kids? I, like, who was on the phone with her drilling her, pretending to be him? I don't know, but I've, like, I, as I wrote on the site and said on Twitter, this was, it was masterful. And it was the result, as, as you're saying, of so much preparation, whether it was in front of, like, a mirror, in front of kids, with Oprah, whatever. It was, first of all, like, memorizing all the details all the research. All the names. All Remember the names. when she rattled off all yeah. of those names? She looked down maybe once. Yeah. Didn't mispronounce anybody. Nope. And read off 10 or 12 names. She mm-hmm. practiced that. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was in, in preparing for the volatile loose cannon, you have your go-tos, right? These are, these are the things I'm definitely going to get out there at some point. I will wait for the moment. I will wait for the open door. But these are the list of names, the allegations, and then also allowing for the spontaneous and then coming in with a follow-up question that is, like, do you remember at one point he was like, I need help. And like, it was a pretty volatile situation. He was just like crying and screaming and raging and whatever. And then he suddenly is like, I just need help. I just need, and right away she was like, what kind of help? What help do you need? Right. And then of course he gives this stupid fucking answer. Like I need help not loving so much or whatever. But I mean, the fact that to me, it was stronger for her to like seize in. She was like, what help do you need? That was really the answer. That was the like that was her telling the audience this man does need help, not the kind of help that he says he needs. Well, it's really interesting that you say that because it's also anticipating the audience's question, mm-hmm. right? So often, I I think the one danger of us sitting here and talking about how it was it felt like 2004 in media is I think that what we miss, what we are talking about is really in-depth, skillful interviewing. And if you notice, what we don't see these days, and look, to be fair, we don't see these kinds of interviews at all anymore, these kinds of like intense, in-depth, you're going to get the answers. But interviewers these days who admittedly are being tasked with being much more, much lighter and much more like, let's make sure it's Instagrammable or whatever, they don't listen to the person that they are interviewing. You can hear and see them nodding along to the person that they're interviewing and, a, and an answer comes out that is maybe wonky or just bland or whatever. And then they go on to the next question. It's been said that you are blah, blah, blah. Yeah. What Gail does in that moment. She follows the puck. I need help. I, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she does. But yeah. that's harder. It is mm-hmm. easier said than done. Yeah. It is my favorite thing to do when I'm interviewing somebody is to actually listen to what they're saying and find the question. No, I want to know what you just said there. Yeah. And it throws people off. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when we interviewed Josie, he talked about how, wow, this is really personal, these questions, because we were interested in his answers as opposed to what's next. When R. Kelly says, I need help, what kind of help? It's specific. Yep. It is exactly what's happening in that moment. And it's also not a yes or no question, mm-hmm. right? It's not just, oh, you need help? Tell us more about that. What kind of help? Incredibly yeah. specific, incredibly yeah. incisive. It's excellent. And the tone was perfect. It was like, it was because like inside, 
the, the, the synapses, everything's firing. It's like, oh, ding, ding, ding. That's something. But how it came out was, what well, kind of help? Well, it was so fucking neutral. I suspect that when we are talking about this in the future and we want to like mimic her affect, we're just going to say, I need to be super gale in this situation. Big gale energy. Yeah. But what do you call what she was? Because she walked that great line of mm-hmm. utterly skeptical yeah. and super respectful at the yeah. same time. How did she do that? Like he, I mean, he may feel differently now, but she wasn't going, she wasn't intentionally making him feel like an idiot. If he's going to look like an idiot, he's going to do that all by himself. Right. So she was there to ask questions, to do a job. That's right. Okay. Um, You want to tell your story? Let's tell it. Let's hear it. I mean, the only time where that maybe came out, but it was still professional was, Robert, I'm I'm not going to sit here and watch you like yell at the camera. But that was amazing. Yeah. It was so, I mean, she was like talking to a child, you know, like, let me know when you're done. Yeah. Um, Which was great. But, you know, she, even the ways that she pushed back on the questions, uh, you've never been with a girl who's under 17? No. You've never had sex with a woman who's under 17? No. Have you ever done anything illegal with a woman? No. And then the increasing skepticism while still being respectful. Have you ever done anything that somebody would think was immoral? Like, she's like, okay, you fucker. I know what you're doing. Yeah. I will rephrase this question as many ways as you need yeah. for you to, like, back yourself into a barrel. Yeah. I, it's, it's so skillful. So, yeah, what do we call that? Like, uh, intrepid disaffection? I don't know. <laughs> Dispassionate? I guess so, but like, yeah, maybe dispassionate, but yeah, controlled, but still super present, you know, like still following the puck, as you say, like still very much aware of what's going on. And I will say not to like build up Gail and tear down anybody else, but you know, I guess in the last few years, the person who gets a lot of big interviews, for example, would be Anderson Cooper. And I enjoy Anderson to a point. Yeah, but let's be real. Some way. Yes. And, but I always feel like when I'm watching Anderson Cooper, he's waiting for his aha moment and it's obvious. Like I can see it in his eyes, like how thirsty he is for it. Right. And it's a different method, right? He yeah. will soft pedal, soft pedal, yeah. soft pedal until he gets to what he… Th- but you can yeah. smell it from a mile away. Gail had none of that. It was, as you say, a presentness that was there that… Um, that even if there was a reporter's hunger and thirst, because reporters have to be thirsty. Like of you're course. you're sniffing out something. So I'm not using Anderson's thirst against him. Like every journalist should have thirst. However, it I think some are better at camouflaging it, and not even camouflaging because I think camouflage implies like there's deceit. But um, there's a way to to be present, as you're saying. So that you're following the puck and you're not like actively at the same time on the hunt. I mean, maybe it's about pace, pacing yourself, right? If you know that everything, that you are so there and so focused that you are going to get them at every turn, that there's no escape from any way, then you don't have to hunt it down so much, right? Mm -hmm. That there's no way they're going to wiggle out of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe it's about pacing yourself or about just that, that 
let him come to you, I would love to know, like, the oral history of that interview. Right. I would pay a lot of money to hear somebody read the oral history out loud. Well, you know, what's interesting is that she's giving it in bits and pieces, you know, on CBS, which, like, I've… Uh, now I have like I've I've set like a standard everyday recording for CBS this morning. So well done, Gail. Well, and <laughs> you know, in the background of all this is the morning wars and everything else. Yeah. Right? So I have now watched more of CBS this morning in the conventional way, like on my TV, not online, than ever. Right. And so the way it works is she sets it up, then she throws to it, and then they come back out on the extra. And then she like fills in more details. A little more context, yeah. And so on the first day when, you know, she interviewed him and we saw the clips, afterwards she came out and her colleagues were like, wow, you know, credit to you as they should have given her for staying so calm, for maintaining your composure. And she talked about how she wasn't afraid of being hit um, and how she felt about all that and where it took place. The second day is the day where she interviewed the two girlfriends. Mm-hmm. I'm putting girlfriends in quotes. Yeah. So listen, whatever that interview, what the girl said, this and that and the other. Um, But when they came out of that, you know what she said? Is she said, Robert was off camera (gasps) the whole time. No. Yes. I did not know that. Yes. Ugh. So she's doing that oral work, that oral history here, right? So she did her job in the moment with the women And then she comes out and she's like, so here's what they said. They said they're in love with him. They're not being hurt. They're not being held against their own will. Uh, But by the way, he was off camera the whole time and he would cough periodically. I'm just… I know you're disgusted as am I. Right. Yes. Fucking yes. So he would cough and he would make himself… He would remind them… That he was there. That's right. And she did that work too. Contextualizing all the time. But it's still a reporter's observation. That's right. That is reporting. It's reporting. There's no tone there. No. no, But, um, you know, there's a reason beyond Oprah and Gail why we can't stop linking these two conversations, right? Uh, Because he, remember he kept going on about like chains who would use chains? Right. Um, because that's the one point that he can stick onto so that people can be like, okay, fine, it was twine or whatever. I'm I don't know, yeah. allegedly, whatever, whatever. You can chain people without physical. But this is it. Yes. So that cough is, is that manipulation, yes. is the seduction and the grooming and the control. That has nothing to do with whether or not they're physically being beaten. They are still trapped there. Right? Yes. Like, and this is the conversation. They're free to go. They this, they that. Mm-hmm. Are they, though? Like, we, that's what that intimidation is. That's why those two conversations, those two interviews go so hand in hand. Yeah. So, obviously, like, these give us so much, these two conversations, and God, these two women. So, they know that, too. Like, I think it's not an accident that they save, as you say, sort of the power of Oprah. Um, what did you call it? The magic. The Oprah effect. The Oprah effect for something so important. Or what I loved so much that you said about the R. Kelly interview is you said this is the first time in so long that he's been confronted with a woman who doesn't crumple in front of him. 
Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So I guess my question to you uh, is why these, why these interviews? Or I know why. I know because these are important and we need to see them. But why not anything else? Like who, where we miss these formats so badly, right? Is it that you think there are fewer people who will put themselves in these positions? Or do you think we can get this back somehow? I don't think there's a dearth of people who are, should be in this position. (laughs) No, not in the least. (laughs) Um, Will they put themselves in this position? After what we've seen in the last week and the skill level of these two women, they probably don't want to. No, I mean, of course not. Yeah. And yeah. I would advise against it if I was advising them. And and yet you feel like, you know, uh, a number of things like impeachments and trials and whatnot would be like handily done if they could only just let Oprah at certain but people. here's the other side of that. If you can get past the Gail King gauntlet, if there's a PR tactic in place, throw out R. Kelly for a second. There sure. is no redeeming that person. No, whatever. Whatever. Sure. But if you are a celebrity and you've been through a fuck up. Well, or a or, public figure of any kind. Yeah. Sure. And you've made a mistake that doesn't involve like actually uh, hurting people's lives in that way. Right. We're talking abuse, molestation. Like, let's just say, you know, a general misfire that isn't illegal and isn't. You guys get what I'm saying? I'm not trying to excuse any crimes. Like, no, okay. we know where we're going here. Yes. Yeah. So you are a celebrity or a famous person, a notable person, a CEO, whatever. You've, you've gone through something like this. If you are able and capable of doing the same level of research and preparation Gail's doing, and you can get through that, you may come out the other side a win. Like, if you can survive that. I mean, uh, yeah, if. I don't know who could. I think that That's the question. Yeah, I don't know, because I think that... What we're seeing is, of course, not to, you know, cliche our own mantle, but this is so much work involved, which is to say they've been prepping for these moments forever, right? Like that you don't let this person wiggle out. If you're a CEO or a whomever, uh, no matter how much media training you've done, no matter how much like whatever you've done, there's something about the camera especially that camera over her shoulder, six inches from your face that uh-huh. doesn't lie, that betrays your sweat or your twitch or whatever it is. May I actually, I just remembered this. No, I thought Be- we were gonna. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I actually, we've been talking about format and where, what format each woman excels in. Yep. Oprah has been in the Gale format. She has. With, a disgraced person. 
and wasn't as good at it. No. Are you thinking of- Lance Armstrong. Oh, yeah. I was thinking of something else, but yeah, so go on. that interview was a big deal for me. Right. I used to love Lance. I've right. read the books. I drank the Lance Kool-Aid. And I was, I'm pro- like, in, in like the Lance area, arena conversation, I am the, like, I was, sorry, the- MJ fan who today still you were a Lance Stan. I, I was a fucking Lance Stan through you and really through. Really were, which is like for you know Yasik who knows me so well. It is one of the things that surprised him the most because I'm the most cynical. Yes, and I'm like no, you're not, you are, but you're also yes, like you're a I bit dream. Of a, you're a fan girl. Yes, yes, and so I like through all of it, I only like gave up on Lance when like the federal papers came out and it was like literally undeniable. Like you, you couldn't, you know, anyway. So of course at that point I was like, see you later. I'm done. I, I held out the longest. And then Oprah did the interview. Mm -hmm. I remember my cousin Kat and I were both like super into Lance. Right. Um, And so we, I think we, we were having a sleepover one night in a hotel and we made a point of like streaming it and watching it. And I was not impressed with Oprah's work. She did not do what Gail was able to do. There were no, she didn't follow the puck in the follow-up questions. She didn't dig. She was, and so. Do you think she felt sympathetic to him? I don't know. I just know that in that moment, that is not where she thrives. She thrives in that setting, in her studio or set up like that, where she, like, no one else can do it like her in that setting. Gail probably couldn't do it in that setting. No, what Oprah does and has done is is able to silence entire theaters of people. She has them in the palm of her hand waiting for her to drop the bomb at that 25-minute mark. We'll be right back. That's right. She's great at it. She's great at that, and Gail is better at the other thing. And these are two uniquely old-school skill sets, I would say. Which is interesting because Oprah's whole MO now is more or less one-on-one, right? Super Soul Sundays or whatever other… What she does on 60 Minutes or like doesn't she do a thing on 60 Minutes? I think so. But like the fact that we don't know is a bit of a a problem, right? Because they're not incisive enough to arrest our timelines and have us knowing every minute. Um, But yeah, she really… Even the last thing I remember from Oprah… Ironically, before this, what's the last big Oprah memory before this one? I'll tell you. It was her speech at the 2018 Golden Golden Globes. Globes. Remember? It was a heart stopper, game changer. Yes. The entire room, again, the rowdiest party in Hollywood. Uh And she had everybody silent. There you go, Duana. Live? Live. Audience? Yep. Yep. That's her MO. That's where she, Oprah is essentially a preacher, right? Like she is essentially a a public speaker to millions in the moment. She knows that format impeccably. And it is a totally different format than a one-to-one deep news interview, even though they're both about interviewing. Yeah. Deep investigative journalism, like the way that Gail delivered. I mean, that was Listen, it was breath, both, both were breathtaking in their own ways, mm-hmm. but I, I remember, I mean, listen, <laughs> half this podcast is me basically reliving my texts to you, but <laughs> I mean, good. That's great. That's a format. I'm, I was texting you while I was watching Gail, I think. And I said to you, I was like, 
this is what she's doing is she is reminding him if, or if he ever knew it at all, showing R. Kelly what it's like to speak to somebody you aren't dominating. That's right. You said it's been such a long time since he spoke to anybody. You said since he spoke to a woman. Yeah. Who was not afraid of him. Yeah. And I will say this because you mentioned this a lot. Like you mentioned this near the beginning. There are some people who are angry with Gail because, you know, they or with gave CBS or whatever for giving him a platform. I will say you are wrong. Um, yeah, absolutely. You're wrong. You're wrong. And here's why. And I don't want to insult anyone, but this is, that is a very, um, it's, it, it's, it's a really, I it's short sighted and it's a, it's short sighted and it's a really immature way of looking at this situation because you're missing the point that what she did was she became the proxy for countless black women who were ignored by society and perhaps even by their own community and didn't feel like they were supported. That was what she was doing. She was their stand in. So it wasn't about giving him a platform. It was about giving them a conduit through her to challenge and confront the person that many of those women are still afraid to do. Well, I I love that. It's not what I thought you were going to say at all. I love that. Um, And yet my takeaway on the thing that she did and why it was so necessary is kind of totally different. For me, it was a role play for people who are facing off against manipulative sociopaths. There was a moment, I'm not going to lie, the first clip that I watched, I can't remember what it was that he said, but I had sympathy for him in the first moment. The first thing he said, he, I'm just trying to get back to my kids or something. Oh yeah, that was the line. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, this is not about music. You can have it. I'm trying to get back to my kids. And I had a momentary pang and they cut to her and her face looks like it looks. (laughs) And I'm like, oh yeah, right. That's a line. Don't be, don't get manipulated by that. Do not get sucked in. Yeah. To me, it was a training ground in when somebody feeds you these lines and is also, Mm -hmm. you know, hurting you, is doing things that make you lesser and, you know, that minimize you, do not be sucked in by these lines. I thought it was a masterclass in almost a role play of what that would be like. All the lines. Modeling it. Modeling. Because you can see him as he gets increasingly desperate, throwing all the tricks in the book at her, right? Yeah. Tears, anger, uh, noise, like looking like he's going to hit her, which he didn't. But, you know. um, And then that like fucking part where he was like, I'm buried alive, but I'm still alive. Like, you know, look to me like I'm a hero of tenacity. That's right. Fuck you. The apology, the, and I'm just so sorry that I got upset. I just, it's so emotional. You know, like every trick in the book. And to me, that's why it was so important to see this visually not an interview, not yep. a print interview, but to see it live, to go, this is what it looks like mm-hmm. to be in the presence of somebody who will gaslight you within an inch of your life. Well, you know what? It can be both, right? Of course it's, it can be she, both. And that's also like, hey, another point Another point for Gail is that she was doing so many things at once. She was sticking up for and standing up for and standing in for the victims mm-hmm. and modeling for 
perhaps other women out there. Other victims. Of, other, of yep. other, yes. Perhaps this can be the way. Mm-hmm. This is what it looks like. And yeah. this is where those interviews, again, are linked to me, is Oprah's talking about this is what grooming looks like. This is what seduction looks like. And Gail is going, this is what manipulation looks like. Yeah. This is what this kind of control looks like. A lot of work. Whew. I keep coming back to wishing there was more. I want to watch this every day. You say you now watch CBS uh, this morning every day, and but we know every day can't be like this, right? But I would tune in for Gail any day of the week. I want more of Oprah holding entire rooms in the palm of her hand. I wish there were more, but I think we know this is not, we're not going back to this format, right? Uh, as you said, public figures won't risk it. Uh, or don't need it, or both. Uh, and the other kind of story that's been in the news this week, totally inexplicably um, in terms of how much it permeated, is uh, the interview that Jada Pinkett Smith did around her table uh, with Jordan, Jordan Woods. This came to us through a listener called Elaine. Um, And Elaine wrote to us saying, love the show and the site. I can't stand the KJ family. That would be the Kardashian-Jenner family. And genuinely wish they would drop off the face of the earth. But I would love if you and Duanna would discuss the Jordan Woods debacle from the showing your work using your power angle for Jada Pinkett Smith. It was skillful the way the Smiths, specifically Jada, used a career's worth of power and clout to protect a young black girl from the power of that family. Black Twitter definitely helped, but I had no idea that Jada and Will had that much power until they used it. Would love your take, and you don't even have to mention those slugs' names. Okay. Well, (laughs) listen, we have dedicated a podcast or two on the Kardashian-Jenners, and not unflatteringly. However, this is in this unique situation, and quick background, Khloe Kardashian in her Tristan Thompson um, was caught maybe, I don't know, fooling around with Jordan Woods. And then they kind of excised Jordan from the the clan. And then Jada had Jordan on her uh, talk show or online uh, roundtable show. It's a Facebook live show that she does. Yeah. Uh, Which people love anyway, right? Like often it's talking about like life and sex and whatnot with her mother and Willow. and yeah. Yeah. Like our fave Ellen Pompeo has been on that show. Anyway, so she had Jordan on and she allowed Jordan to tell her side of the story. And, uh, you know, Jordan was forthcoming with certain details and I guess took responsibility and also didn't take responsibility for things she didn't think that she should have to take responsibility for. And then Jada basically threw down a shield and said... This woman has been forthcoming. She's made mistakes, but she does not deserve to be crucified. And since then, that happened. The airing of the interview happened um, on Friday, March the 1st. And the attacks on Jordan pretty much petered out. So it was so, I guess I came to know about this backwards. I... There's a there's a limit to what I can know about these people. And no, but I mean, you know, yes. things that are associated with uh, big events or brands, I get. 
the the vagaries of who and what uh, you know it's it's usually not in my wheelhouse yeah i would say that jada doing this interview with jordan woods is what made me find out what the hell it was all about and i was a bit shocked initially because um to elaine's point i sort of thought why is Jada Pinkett Smith getting mixed up in this mess. Like, why is she stooping to the level of insults being slung back and forth on Twitter? But I love Elaine's point and your point about the shield, that this was a way for her to, via interview, again, via straightforward, incisive, unwavering questions, to defuse the whole thing over on, on, I mean, we're saying a woman who she's essentially a teenager. Is she not? She's like 21. Yeah. It's a baby. It's really, it seems like it's been a really rough situation for, yeah. Somebody who's essentially a, yeah, a, a baby to then, yes, have the full heft of this family and all their power and whatever on top of her. And I think, if I understand correctly, Khloe Kardashian went so far as to not quite apologize, but say she was out of line. She backtracked because so when the when the interview or the roundtable first aired, her first response was, you're lying, Jordan, and you ruined my family. At which point... Can I just... <laughs> you, uh, you and I have differed on this point. Yeah. The only person, not in this specific situation, I yeah. mean in life... The only person who has a responsibility to the family is the person who is in the family. Please continue. I agree with you in this situation. Thank you. Um, so, yes. Uh, she said that Twitter, black Twitter, especially came for her. And for Chloe, we should say. Came for Chloe and essentially and essentially articulated what you just articulated. Um, you know who ruined your family is the daddy of your baby. Mm-hmm. And... She got, she got slammed and dragged on Twitter and she backtracked from it and followed up with more tweets saying, I was emotional. I said the wrong thing. Tristan's to blame. Whatever. Right. But for all intents and purposes, the format that Jada used, since the theme of today's show is formats, the format that Jada used was her own in discussion essentially live. I do believe it was pre-taped, but it ran like on Facebook. Yeah. that Those shows um, always have the feel of being pre-taped, um, of being live to tape maybe, you yeah. know, and then edited to, for conversation flow or what. Yes. But she used this format where she allowed someone to speak at length. It wasn't like on Instagram. It wasn't like a fucking Snapchat. It was a long conversation, right? It was slow. It wasn't at the pace of what we see now with quick cuts. Um, and then, yes, used her power almost, if we're going old school, it was old school. It was a big sister. Mm-hmm. It was a big sister looking out for a little sister or like a de facto daughter because like some of her kids are the same age. Yeah. It was a, it was a no nonsense yeah. sort of chat with your mom's best friend. That's who right. Who says, now I know you're emotional, yeah. but there are parts of this that, you know, you should have thought better of, aren't there? Yes, there are. Yeah. And there are parts of this that I want you to know were not your fault and not a thing. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you felt yeah. a bit salved and cleansed. Yeah. So that's yet another sort of 
a, a way to use that power. I'm I'm still surprised at it. I'm still surprised that she chose that uh, that she chose that interview and that moment. Uh, and I guess I wonder what we think it means, uh, especially because Jordan Woods is at the polar opposite mm-hmm. end of the uh, well-known scale yeah. from the people we've been talking about, right? Well, I, you know, we've been talking about when to use your power throughout our podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And also on this episode, for example, Oprah resurrecting the format that we are so familiar with very, very selectively for obviously a cause and a subject that she feels so strongly about. Jada, too, is quite selective about which fights that she picks. Do you remember that she and Will, but she led it a few years ago, was basically the first big celebrity during Oscar So White? I just sat straight up with remembrance. Yes, go on. She was like, this is bullshit. We are not going to the Oscars. And we are, basically, she was urging other black entertainers to boycott the Oscars. Like, she was staking a claim. Or she was putting, is that an expression, putting yeah, a yeah. stake in the ground or whatever? Yeah, is that, staking a claim is, is yeah, drawing a line in the yeah, sand, maybe. Is like, yeah. So she was actually saying, and she was taking on the Academy. Right. And, you know, this goes back to... Uh, Elaine, listener Elaine's email, which is to say, yeah, Will and Jada have long been extremely powerful and extremely able to use it and wield it when they want to, uh, whether it's, yeah, for Oscar So White or elevating Tiffany Haddish or whatever it turns out to be. Yeah. Um, You're right that it it is when it matters, when it feels important. To their community. To their community and also to themselves, I would imagine. Because I would say that essentially what Jada has given us is a, it's a roundtable on slut shaming, right? Which maybe we thought we were done with that conversation. And it comes back. And I think it resonated with a lot of people who inside and outside of every given permutation yeah. and dem- and demographic. Look, and she she picks, she's punching up every time. The Academy is certainly punching up. Sure. And for all our snickering, or Elaine's snickering, and other people out there too, um, the Kardashian-Jenners are extremely powerful. Extremely. And when we say that, money. Money talks. Uh, like Kylie Jenner is now the youngest self-made. Don't say self-made. But yes, okay. Right? Well, I mean, that's the headline, right? I know, I know, I know. This is what's come out. Like, whatever your feelings about it, Mm -hmm. fact, billionaire. And money, this is my phrase all the time, but yes, especially lately, is follow the money to see where the power is. That's right. It's, they're not powerful because of their cultural ideas or because of whatever you like or don't like about their personalities. Yeah. They are money makers and yes that commands respect and commands mm-hmm. people to do their bidding essentially well when you're talking about money like dollar for dollar yes jada and will are rich i don't know if they're as rich as all the kardashian jenners together i i would guess not i it might be this is a separate conversation but it might begin to draw even uh will smith's movies were at you know, were massive hits at the time when stars were starting to ask for 
mm-hmm. profit points instead of yeah. big salaries and whatnot. So they, but look, it's not a sure thing by any means, no. put it that way. And Will and Jada are at a different point in their careers. Yeah. They're not super A++++ list the way they will always be A-list. Of course. Like legacy A-list, but they're not the first person on people's phone calls these days the way, the way they once were. That's right. So again, what we're talking about is she picks big foes. You are absolutely right. She really does. She doesn't, it's not something, it's not a fight she knows she can win easily. Yeah. It's something that's like, no, this is important enough to, to risk it on, to stake it on. That's right. So, I mean, that's the thread of, of these three women, Oprah, Gail, Jada. And not for nothing, the power of an interview. You can have all the, you know, we keep saying it, but all the Instagram lives in the world, all the straight to cameras, all the self-authored articles in the world, but there's something incredibly powerful about one person asking another person straight questions and sitting there waiting for the answer. And on that note, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. Hope you had as much fun as we did because we were over the top excited talking about these women and these topics. Um, We will be back next week. But in the meantime, please work hard. Please send us your notes, your thoughts. We can be reached on Instagram and Twitter. Subscribe to us where you get your podcasts, leave comments and reviews. Um, And we'll be back. Bye. Bye. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.